This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, Pastor Bruss, I am just overwhelmed to be back in the Plucked Chicken studio with you. And truth be told, I am rarely overwhelmed. Today, I've served us up a heaping helping portion of sermonistic scuba line brought to us by none other than Randy Hand. Oh, Randy Hand again. Oh, oh yes. Okay. Who seems to enjoy putting the beat down on his congregation every chance that he gets. But before we continue, I need to let our listeners know about our Patreon page. Over the course of the last several years that we've been plucking this chicken, people have asked if they could support us, and I have finally gotten around to creating what's called a Patreon page. If people want to just go to our website, thepluckchicken.com, in the upper right-hand corner, yeah, I believe it says Support the Pluck Chicken, and people can click there, and that'll take you to our Patreon page. And if they choose to do so, they can throw some shekels our way. What will we do with those? Probably buy some new equipment. And so we're, we're constantly improving our equipment, and that's, that's important to know. Yeah, and uh, just last week we, we bought a whole new microphone and a whole new setup to invite another pastor or to have a guest on of sorts. And so, uh, you know, this stuff ain't free. No, there's that, and then uh, it would also be helpful for us ultimately, wouldn't it, if we could get to a point where we could actually pay somebody to do the editing of these things. Holy moly, now you're dreaming. All right, well, back to this sermon. In this one here, Randy Hand, he talks about miracles and how all Christians, emphasizing the word all, all Christians should expect to perform miracles in their lives. Uh, today, I want to start off with what I called a secret. Now, anybody that's read the Bible will tell you that this is not a secret that I'm getting ready to share with you. But what I have found in the churches that I've grown up in, in the churches that I've served, that what I'm getting ready to share with you is a secret because most of us do not know it. Most of us are not aware of it. Or if we are aware, we've talked ourselves out of it. So let us start today with this secret. And the secret is this. God's plan for every Christian includes miracles. God's plan... For every, if you're writing it down, underline the word every, every Christian includes miracles. I thought that was so interesting how he started the sermon with, you know, that this is a secret. That, that I don't know, anytime I hear somebody tell me about some sort of secret, red flags just go up. Yeah, I, I don't, and, and the whole, this is a pretty broad claim. Every Christian, right? right? And write it down underline it. Um, what do you think about that? Well, uh, he hasn't given us any biblical backing at this point in time, so it'll be interesting to see where he goes with this. But how would you answer that? I mean, regardless of biblical content, I mean, he's going to take us to what he perceives to be the biblical proof for this, but what would you say? I would say that there are so many people in the scriptures, true believers, who at least as far as we know, experienced no miracles whatsoever. Uh, I mean, think about the very first one, Adam. What miracles does Adam have? How about... Uh, Just that he doesn't have a belly button. Oh, but that's, he, that's it, right? But he didn't do right. that. <laughs> just, and, and go, just go through the list. You know, Abraham witnesses some miracles, uh, without doubt, uh, with the 
the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, the and meeting of the uh, the, the angels the, who uh, were in, going there, in Genesis thirteen or eighteen, excuse me, his wife uh, who was barren for Sh- sure ever. So we see we see it with him, um, but what about? Um, I, I I just don't I I think that that's a broad overstatement. So think about how after Peter preaches, this is after Pentecost. 3,000 people get saved. They repent. They're baptized. We don't hear anything of those folks. Of uh, all of their miracles. Right. Right. We hear, we hear of some miracles, There's without doubt, to substantiate the, the claims of the, the apostles. And, uh, but beyond that, not so much. But when it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, do you think that the apostles were then turning around to these newly baptized folks and teaching about miracles? I don't think so. And oh. um, so he's he has made the claim that every single Christian should see miracles, okay? But but Paul talks about the division of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. He says there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. And varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So this is, I mean, here we've got a very clear word of Scripture that says, no, uh, not every Christian ought to expect to do or see miracles. And can we define miracles? Uh, Let me tell you the way that I define it, and you correct me if I'm wrong. I would say that a miracle is that which is synonymous with the super or supra-natural. I would totally agree with that. The supernatural working of God himself. Right. So supra meaning above. So it's above the natural. Bread falling from heaven. This is supra-natural. This, is, this does not happen. Right. Inside the created order of God. Right. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, sun standing still. Uh, dead men rising. Dead men rising, uh, looking at a bronze uh, serpent on a pole and being healed from a snake bite. I mean, th- these things don't happen in the natural created order. So it's, abo- it's above that. Anything below that, now let me give you an example. I remember having this conversation with a, a dear woman years ago, and she was relaying to me a friend who fell down a flight of steps and was not hurt by this, surprisingly. So she thought it was a miracle. She, you know, wanted to go to blows with me that this was a miracle. There's no doubt that I rejoice with her and the fact that her friend was not harmed. Right. But let's not put a label on that that is incorrect. Right. And we would say, uh, you know, let's say, and everybody's got a story like this of money showing up when it wasn't expected and when it was desperately needed. Again, that's not a miracle. Right, that's God working through the natural order. And we call that providence. That's the providence of God. Yep. So we put things that are within the natural order, and both of them deserve 
our praise to the Lord and our thanks. It's not that one is lesser than the other. It's just it's just in the wrong category. Sure. It doesn't have to be called a miracle to be God's good working toward us. Now, some of you are saying, well, Randy, that's not a secret to me. Well, it has been for me. If we're basing it upon whether something is a reality in our life, if we're basing it upon something that we're living out in our life, then I would be willing to say if I looked at your life, and I know if you look at my life, then it would become evident that what I just shared with you, that God's plan for every Christian is to include miracles, we'd all be shocked. In fact, one of the most problematic verses in all the Bible is found in, in John chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus says this. He says, I tell you the truth. By the way, when Jesus is saying that, when he starts off with, I tell you the truth, he's telling you, I'm going to tell you something that you want to argue with. I'm going to tell you something that you're going to find hard to agree with. And, and trust me, this is not any different. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done. Now think about what he just said there. This is a man who turned water into wine. This is a man that walked on water. This is a man that fed 5,000. This is the man that resurrected the dead. And he says, anyone, that includes you, anyone, that includes me, will do the same works that I've done. Now, by the way, that right there is enough. That blows my mind. That's hard for me to swallow. But then he, he just can't leave well enough alone. And then he goes on and says, and even greater works. Well, now he's just messing with me. He's saying that I'm going to do greater works, that I have the ability to do greater works than the Son of God. Well, nothing like jumping into a text, uh, right, right without, without even considering the context whatsoever. Uh, so this, this is highly problematic. John is also very uh, difficult. He, he always has to be read contextually, and... Um, what are the works that that Jesus is talking about? I mean, this to me, this is the big this is the big thing. So right, he, because he goes it, right to the miracles. Right, it's almost like uh, you you can insert whatever you want that to be. Greater works. Well, what is that? Well, what do you want it to be? And so Jesus above is talking about the th- the things that uh, his Father does through him, and it's it's really the proclaiming of the Father's will and word. Um, and those are the works that Jesus is talking about. So when Peter preaches and 3,000 people get saved, did Jesus ever preach in a manner in which 3,000 people or more got saved? There is no, no, label, no such label was ever attached to that. So would that be a greater work? Well, indeed. And, and it's, what's interesting is that, uh, as, as, as you point this out, Jesus later, Jesus is going to connect these greater works to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, and there, uh, the gift is given on Pentecost, and here we see the result, the, this miraculous, really amazing thing that 3,000 people believe. And, and that's just 3,000 men. Are we pushing on this a little too much when we think about the size of our congregation and who you and I get to preach to and and how we put our stuff online. We don't know who's viewing, who, how many people are listening, but, you know, more and more people. Why can't this be the greater work? And this is why Jesus says, it's to your advantage that, that I, I go, go away. away. Right. That's a secret, right? You had not heard that before. If you have heard it, you haven't listened. And then he continues, why will we be able to do greater works? Because I am going to be with the Father. You, meaning 
anyone who believes in Christ, you can ask anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. And just to make sure we get it, he repeats himself. He said, yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now, What's he saying there? He's saying, if you call yourself a Christian, if there's been a moment in your life where you've called upon the name of the Lord and been saved, he's saying that you have the power, you have the ability to do what he did and even greater. He just doesn't get it that Christ came to earth to set up a spiritual kingdom, uh, a kingdom uh, that he rules um, by his word and spirit. Uh, and by the means uh, that he gives to give his word and spirit through his word and sacrament. And um, basically what he's doing is he's, is he's um, pressing this into the orders of the world that you were talking about earlier, these, uh, su- would you call them subnatural? They're not really subnatural, just natural things, not supra. So to ask, to ask in Christ's name, is to ask according to the, the, the will and the purpose of Christ, which is to save sinners. But wasn't this the same guy who was trying to figure out where to go to lunch one day with one of his associate pastors or something like this, and he puts his hand in the air and he asked the Lord, and the Lord directed them to a certain restaurant, and it turns out... He had a conversation. Out, yeah, that, yeah, that the other guy had a conversation with... Uh, I mean, they were able to, to minister to some folks while they were there. I mean, isn't that a miracle that, that, that God told him to go to Chick-fil-A and not the Mexican restaurant? No, it's providential, and it was his gray matter that told him to go to Chick-fil-A. And he just blamed it on God. Right. You know how many people we got who do that stuff? Oh, I think I think all sorts of people do, right? The this phrase God thing drives me crazy. God thing? Yeah, this Oh yeah. I was driving down the street the other day and a little boy ran in front of me while I was looking at my phone and looked up just in time to swerve and miss him and and oh that was a God thing. Wow. You you've not heard that I phrase. Well, I, that's that's you that's in use in Kansas, I guess. Oh, I had not heard it before here. Oh, interesting. That just blows my mind. And then he goes on, he uses that word, anything. Now, we always know that anytime there's a word like that, I hope you write this down, make, this, make, make a note of this, that there's an exception to every rule. And when he says anything, there is an exception to that. Do you notice the, the exception? Did you see the condition that Jesus put on this promise? The condition is Jesus. The condition is a person. For example, he says, our miracles are limited by what Jesus is. He said, works that I have done, works in my name. The condition on our miracle working power is Jesus. You're saying, well, Randy, what does that mean? Well, for example, Jesus didn't heal everybody. We know that his father died early in Jesus' life. And so Jesus didn't heal everybody, so guess what that means about us? We won't be able to heal everybody Either. We'll be able to heal some, but we won't be able to heal everybody either. Also notice Jesus' miracles weren't for himself. The Bible said that Jesus was thirsty on the cross, but he didn't turn water into wine then. And so what does that mean? That means that our miracles, the miracles that occur in our life, they won't be for us 
either. You see, if you want to understand what this anything means, you need to understand the why. Why did Jesus do miracles? He tells us so that the Son can bring glory to the heavenly fathers. When we experience miracles, if we experience miracles in our life, it will be so that we can make God the Father look good. So notice a couple things that he's done here already with the text. He's already limited it, right? So he started off by saying anything or everything, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Now he's limiting it, okay? And, and that's the right thing to do because it's, it's the in my name. That's, that's a critical thing, number one. Number two, I think it's worth pointing out, and I should have been more uh, on to this uh, when we started off. Um, there are, in the, in the gospel according to St. John, there are works, and there are semea, signs. So erga and semea. Jesus says, Jesus is talking about erga here. He's talking about works, not semea. In John, miracles are denoted with the term semeon. That's Jesus, that, Jesus is talking about a different thing here. And, and this actually really, I mean, I would love, if, if we had time, I would love to spend more time sort of digging into the text of John here and, and looking at the term ergon, where that's used. You know, some things come up uh, in my mind. Um, Jesus talks about in John chapter 3 the, the bad works and the good works of, of various people. Uh, he says, this is the work of the Father that you believe in me. Right now, this is a very interesting thing to me. This almost seems like the interpretive key of the of the whole business. So, what is what work has Jesus done? He's drawn to faith in Himself. This is the work of the Father, right? The Father has been working in me. Um, he's drawn to faith in Himself. These believers, and so what ergon are they gonna do? Well, with the gift of the Holy Spirit, they're gonna draw to 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 faith in Jesus others. So let me go to a very familiar passage where Jesus is about to heal a man who is lowered down in front of him. Matthew 9. And so he forgives the man's sins first. And then, of course, everybody freaks out. And then he even says, to prove that the greater work has been done Take up your mat and go home. Right. So which one was the miracle? Well, I, I even th I, I think even bringing in the whole business of miracle here is just is, is confounding. Yeah, but right? both of them are above the natural. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is what drives me crazy. Now, you said something earlier about uh, a God, you know, people saying that was a God thing. Uh, there is there is a big thing in the South about making God famous. You know, fill in the blank to happen because we want to make God famous. I, I really don't think God needs any help in that endeavor. Right, right. And so we, we do miracles, as he says, uh, to, to make the Father look good. That's crazy talk to me. So verse 13 is what he's talking about. Whatever you ask in my name, this I shall do in order that the Father be glorified in the Son. Okay, I, 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 this just needs much more careful exegesis than he's giving it. The, the, so the glory... <laughs> I'm, 
I'm just going to go on. Go. The, glo- the glory in the gospel according to St. John comes to its culmination. You can see this in, in uh, like chapter 17. You know, now the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, what is that? That is his crucifixion. And it's, it's the entire redemptive work of, of, the, of, the, uh, of God. Go back to the most famous verse in John, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is the glory of the Father? The glory of the Father is the gift of the Son in the flesh of man to pay for the sins of the world so that through faith in him, worked by the Holy Spirit, which he's leaving out here because it's just coming right here uh, on the heels of what he's dealing with, Work through the work through the Holy Spirit. That is the glory of the Father. Uh, it's to see the Father as not as a sort of devious, inscrutable God whose ways you have to guess at, but as a God who reveals Himself as a loving God in the flesh of His Son Jesus Christ. But in the Reformed camp, and Randy Hand is in there, and a number of guys that we listen to here on the Pluck Chicken. You know that in the Reformed camp, uh, glory and glorify, you know, uh, in what is it, the Westminster Catechism, the question number one, we are to, you know, what's the chief end of man? It's to uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever. My point is, is that a lot of these evangelicals, they will toss around this word glory and they really are fuzzy on the meaning of of what that actually is. It sounds good, sounds right, but what does it mean? Well, they don't see it, certainly not the way John talks about it. Uh, the, 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 the glory of God in the scriptures is always an upside-down glory. It's, it's, it's in the deepest humiliation. This is where God is glorified because he works his salvation in those things. So to help our listeners understand... I mean, the way that I was taught, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, to think of glory as being the uniqueness. Like when we say glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, this is the uniqueness of this God, that there is three and one. Unlike any other God, what is the glory of a giraffe? It's its neck. Nothing else in all creation is like this. What's the... And you can just go down the line. I mean, what's the glory of a, of a, of an elephant? It's its it's its trunk. What's the glory of a hummingbird? <laughs> that you can't see its wings when it's uh it's a bird, but you can't see its wings, uh, and it can fly stationary. This is what makes these different animals. And again, as I say, I mean, what's the glory of a lightning bug? This is what makes that insect, that animal, whatever unique. So going back to what you said, what is the glory of this God? That he sends his only begotten son to die in the place of sinners, though he was without sin. And that that atonement redeemed the entire world. This is the uniqueness. I agree. Totally agree. But with that being said, you know, I also think of the word kabod. Mm -hmm. So this is glory as well. And we do this all the time. You go to some place like I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's bankrupt now and uh, on its way out the door. But you go to some place like Pier One, and you see some really really nice piece of furniture, 
and you go over to it and you pick it up and it's as light as a feather, some chair, something. It's so light. And the first thing that comes to your mind is what? Cheap. It's cheap. Yeah. Right? There's no glory there. There's no kabod. There's no, there's, no, uh, there's no weight to it. Whereas you go and you pick something else up, it doesn't even matter if it's a, if it's a watermelon. You pick it up and it's heavy. You're thinking, oh, this is, I, I think I'm going to get this one. Right. And I was just looking at this uh, to, to substantiate your point. This is Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. Now listen, listen to the concatenation here. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Salvation. A little bit later. Same chapter, verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Again, that, that's the clothing of baptism, where we receive Christ's death and resurrection uh, applied to us. Um, so that, that's the... That, He's just he's missing the boat on on this whole notion of glory. And let's let's just go one step further and connect this with Lutheran theology. Luther talks about theologians of glory and theologians of the cross. And uh, the Heidelberg theses are, 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 you know have this. You can go to um, bookofconcord.com, I think, and find the Heidelberg theses. Uh, but in God's world, um, this would be twenty one and twenty two specifically. Theses twenty one and twenty two. Okay, I'm not. I wasn't going to cite them, but the po- but I because I don't know them um, off the top of my head. But the point is that it's incumbent upon us to let the scriptures themselves define what glory is, and not for us to import meaning into it. And we naturally want to import our associations with glory into the idea. Uh, just like he's already done with miracles or greater works. Right, right. He's greater, already done it. Right, greater works. I mean, he's already said that those are miracles. Really? I mean, do your homework, buddy, and look at the text of, of John. Well, as you will see in a few moments, and I, and I wrote out in front of you, as you can see there, uh, some different proof texts that he's going to get into. Man, he's going to change the words. I would love to know what translation he's using. Well, you know how these guys operate. They use multiple translations. And find the one that works for them. Right. That is the whole point. That is the whole purpose. They're not for us. They're not for everyone that we want to do it for. The purpose of miracles is to bring glory to the God, God the Father. In fact, Father God himself says in Romans 9, 17, he says, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame Throughout the earth. What's he saying there? He's saying throughout history, God has appointed, God has chosen people to do miracles through. Why? So that we can make him look good. Oh my goodness. So he has taken something from the Old Testament that Paul cites here in, uh, excuse me, Romans 9, and applied it to us. Now, there's nothing wrong with applying the scriptures to the lives of Christians, but, I mean, read the whole verse you gotta, you got to get what Paul is doing here. It's, it's exactly the opposite of what he is saying. Paul here says this, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He's going to destroy Pharaoh. But Randy Hand, even though the context is very clear that Paul is referring to Pharaoh, he's now essentially reading somebody else's mail and attributing it to himself and to everybody else. Right. This is ripped so out of context. Well, guess what? There's more to come. There's more to come. (laughs) Scary. If this applied to Randy Hand and to you and to me, it would be a proclamation that God has set, set out to destroy us. Because? Because that's how it was used originally uh, when God spoke it to Pharaoh. So read it again. I'm going to back up a little bit. Okay. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And anybody who's read the story of the Exodus, I mean, you you understand about that hardening in that Pharaoh originally hardened his heart, but then God started hardening Pharaoh's heart. And that is how God is showing his power in Pharaoh. And again, this is this is perfect theology of the cross. What God does is he he goes after the the lowly, right? A slave nation and says, "This is my prized possession." And against the pride of the Pharaoh who has exalted himself as a god in Egypt, he displays his power by bringing him to his knees. So in a couple of weeks, we have the 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 episode re- the yeah the report the report really of Jesus attending this Pharisee's dinner party. Jesus goes and he really I mean he blasts the host for inviting these um, uh, what would you call them those who are kind of social climbers yeah, yeah 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 and and then he turns around and rebukes the people who are there telling the host listen why why do you invite these people go out and invite the the people who can't pay you back the lame the crippled the blind and and so on i mean isn't this the exact same thing yeah, that yeah. you're exactly. you're speaking it's of to- here that's totally it yep yeah and actually he tells a he tells a parable right after that episode which is this sunday's gospel mm. <laughs> uh which is the 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 rich guys that were invited by this master who say, ah, I got to check out my, I just got married. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. It's not about puffing us up. It's not about making us look good. He does, He chooses people. He appoints people to make him look good. And what Jesus has said is that every Christian has been appointed to do miracles. Why? Notice what Jesus says in John 15, 8. He tells us again, When you produce miraculous fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. If I were listening to this and had no theological training, no understanding of the Bible, boy, you you could easily be misled by, by this. It's fascinating when I think back to my college days. I mean, I was surrounded by college students who probably would hold to the exact same thinking. The point is, 
it's really condemning because anybody can look at their life and even Randy Hand at the end of this sermon will realize we're not seeing this. I can't do it. Can't do it. Right. So these are these are much smaller um, works. So it's not uh, what Jesus actually says in John fifteen eight has nothing to do with um, miraculous fruit. That that's an insertion. Miraculous is an insertion. He says, "If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, whatever you wish, ask, and it will happen for you." In this, my Father has been glorified in order that you bear much fruit and be- become my disciples. Now he goes on. Just as the Father has loved me, so also have I loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I keep the commandments of my Father, and I remain in him in, in love. The, the fruit that Jesus is talking about here is the is the result of faith, which is love, which is the keeping of the law. And this is not miraculous stuff. This is just kind of minor everyday stuff. Yeah, uh, I'm hearing the word mundane. Yes, exactly, mundane, exactly. The things that everybody would sneeze at and say, what's the big deal about that? It's just a cold cup of water. Well, guess what? It's a great good work. Now, go back to verse Romans 9, 17. Notice what he says. He says that we have been appointed. Now, what does that mean? That means that simply means that we have been given a chance. And so as we consider what it means to live a miracle-working life, we need to always remember this. Remember, opportunity doesn't guarantee success. Opportunity doesn't guarantee success. We see it in, in, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 58. It says, Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now think about this. These people had the greatest opportunity in the history of mankind for miracles to take place in their marriage, for miracles to take place with their children, for miracles to take place in their community. They had the greatest opportunity ever, and yet Jesus was unable to do miracles in their life. Why? Because opportunity does not guarantee success. Unable? Jesus was unable? That's not what the text says. It just says he didn't do it. On purpose. On purpose because of their unbelief. Don't cast uh, pearls before swine. You know, I've listened to this sermon several times. I don't really understand the point that he's trying to make here about opportunity doesn't guarantee success. I'm wondering if if what he's saying is is here, you know, Jesus had gone to this town Wherever Jesus went, obviously, he had the opportunity to do lots and lots of miracles. He encountered unbelief, and because—now, this is really interesting, right, isn't it? Because of their unbelief, he was unable to do, do these miracles. This, in itself, is, is amazingly interesting to me. The idea in Arminianism, uh, which is the, the idea that I have to make a decision for Christ— uh, the idea here is that God's salvation, whatever God does, is brought about in cooperation with the human subject. So in other words, basically what this leads to is, is the exact opposite of what Romans 9.17 is saying, that God is God is God is God no matter what. But here's the assertion 
that this is somehow dependent upon, you know, God's workings are somehow going to be dependent upon human subjectivity. It's that darn free will, isn't it? I mean, God yeah. wants to work so much and do so many things, but that... And you that, chose not to let him. Right. Like, really? <laughs> oh. <laughs> and God's like, oh, okay. I, you're oh, right. Uh, you don't want me to do it? Doggone it. I'll take my marbles and go home. Right. I yeah, I can't do it. I guess I, I can't. I guess I can't do it. I know. It's not like God wants to play a game of tag and... Uh, and he's just one among a bunch of equal players. <laughs> and the rest of the eight people say, hey, we don't want to do it, and so God can't play tag. That's not how God works. This is wicked. Uh, it gets worse. Now, why did they not get miracles? Well, we all know that answer. Even somebody who's never been in church knows this. Why do we not get miracles? Because of our lack of faith. But here's the thing that frustrates me. We say that all the time. And we literally use that as a hammer to beat people over the head. But we never tell them what it means. What does it mean for us to lack faith? And if we lack faith, and that means we don't have miracles, what does miracle-working faith look like? Okay, I get it. I am ye of little faith. I get it. I am a faithless creature. Well, don't just tell me that. Tell me what miracle-working faith looks like. Tell the wife this morning that's longing for a miracle in her marriage. Tell the grandma this morning that's longing for a miracle with her grandchildren. What does miracle-working faith look like rather than just beating us over the head all the time telling us we lack faith? And so read with me, if you would, in Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. And we're going to see what the keys to miracle-working faith. We're going to see miracle-working faith in action. And it's not going to be as obvious as you think. Read with me in verse 1. It says, One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. Verse 4 says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Simon, now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish they began to tear. A shout for help brought the partners in the other boat. And soon both boats were filled with fish on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they caught, as were the others with him. His partner, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. And Jesus replied to them, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. All right, so before he makes whatever point he's going to make, I mean, this is, a, this is a wonderful text, is it not? It's a, it's a great text. But what is it actually pointing us to? I mean, there there's several things rolling around in my head, but... Uh, Jump in. Uh, one of them is that the Lord Jesus is God, in that he is the creator of heaven and earth here. Which is why Peter gets down on all fours, right, and says, Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. How can, how can holy God have any truck with me? Right. But then that also, and I'm glad you pointed that out, you could talk about the sinfulness of man 
and realizing that in the presence of that which is holy, this is the only response that man has, just like Isaiah in chapter 6. Right. And yet what Jesus does is he shows himself merciful, right? He shows that he overlooks the sins and he elevates Peter and, and the sons of Zebedee in a way that's just, you know, beyond comprehension by making them his apostles. Now, we preach this text every year. Yes. So I just want you to listen to what Randy Hand says and just see if maybe the next time, Pastor Bruss, you preach it, if <laughs> if you could get a couple pointers. <laughs> Did you see it? He just gave us an example of miracle-working faith. In, in our context today, what just happened was this. Peter was poor. He was lacking financial resources. Why? Because he was a fisherman, and yet he got blown away with a financial miracle. You're saying, Randy, what happened? How do I get that? I'm poor. I need a financial miracle. Randy, I'm poor in my marriage. I'm poor in my family. I'm poor. How do I get that miracle? Well, notice the example that he gave us. If we want miracles in our life today, then the first thing we got to do is we got to give Jesus our boat. We got to give Jesus your boat. Go back to verse 3. It says, Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. Now, some of you are saying, already, I don't own a boat. I'm too poor. I don't own a boat. You do get metaphors, right? You understand symbols, right? The boat was a symbol for us to learn today. Let me give you a definition of a boat. Let me make it real simple for you. The definition of a boat is this, our way of life. Oh, my. I told you it was the bad. The definition of a boat is our way of life. Yeah. I, it's what it's, he'll go on to say uh, it's, it's what gives uh, somebody's life meaning. So it's not a thing that floats upon water that you sit in. Yeah. Or no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this this is just this is really really bad. And what he's doing here is he's taking an actual event, and it, and and there's a real problem with with what he's real a real problem. Well, he's there are so many problems in this, but this is a real problem. He is allegorizing a real event so that. Basically, he's robbing the signifiers, the words, of their meaning and packing them with new meaning, which turns the scriptures into a wax nose. And you said something earlier as you listened to him talk and how he is contradicting himself already. Right. He's contradicted himself at this point. So earlier on, he had said, miracles are for your neighbor. And now what he's doing is he's saying that Peter has worked this miracle for himself to address his own purported poverty. Now, the idea that Peter's poor, I don't know where he's getting this from. I mean, this is, this is ridiculous. I, I mean, I could go on and on about Peter's purported poverty. I don't think that's the case at all. Peter's clearly, uh, I mean, as chief among the, the, um, the disciples, recognized as a leader, he has a boat. I mean, a boat costs a lot of money. Those don't just fall out of trees. He has a house in Capernaum. And if you read the Petrine epistles, the, the, the letters of St. Peter, he's clearly well-educated. So the idea that Peter's poor is a total lark. Well, just go talk to any fisherman. And, and I'm not talking about the 
the guys that do it for leisure, but even those guys, and ask them, um, you know, you take a moderately nice bass boat with the equipment that it takes to, to run that thing and the, and the cost of fuel and so on. And I, I get it. There's a, that's, a, that's a modern boat with, that requires fuel. But still, Peter's employing people, rowing. Uh, well, it's a family business. His dad's involved in it for sure. Right. So this is, a, this is a, an occupation that who knows? I mean, Peter's dad's dad may have been a fisherman too. I mean, it's, right. a, it's a well-established uh, Bubba Gump fishing vessel. Sure, <laughs> sure it is. I sure mean, is. he's got, uh, this is the Jenny out there on the water with uh, probably a, a fleet of Jennies. And there's no doubt, even though I totally agree with you that uh, Peter does come from a well-to-do, a hardworking family, but yet well-to-do family. But this catch of fish, holy moly, this set them up for the year. Yeah, and this is what's so amazing is that Peter walks away. He walks away from this. From the business. Mm -hmm. From the business. Yeah, so he happened to get schnookered the night before. Eh, Every fisherman knows that happens. What do you mean by that? Uh, uh, he he got he got zilch. He got nothing. Right. Gotcha. Everybody knows that that happens from time to time. Sure. The things that define us, the things that give us meaning. That's your boat. Our way of life. The things that define us that give us meaning. And Matthew four eighteen reveals Peter's boat. It says Simon, also known as Peter, and the other was Andrew, were fishermen. What was the Bible say? It says Peter's boat was being a fisherman. That was his vocation. That's what defined him. That's what gave him meaning. If you ever wonder why Peter was so frustrated throughout Scripture, it's because it was usually surrounded around fish. When Peter lost everything with Jesus, what did he go back to? When he lost Jesus because Jesus died, Peter went back to fishermen. Why? Because fishing was his boat. Fishing defined his way of life. If the Bible were describing us today, he would say things like, Well, Randy was a preacher. Why? Because that defines me. That gives me meaning. That's a purpose of my existence. It would say Jennifer was a mom. Jason was a counselor. Tammy was a friend. Why? These are the things in our life that define us, that give us meaning. That's a way of life for us. Now, let's be honest, because I know what some of you are thinking. Does Randy know what you're thinking, Pastor Bruce? He really doesn't. He probably doesn't want to know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure he doesn't want to know. How... What a, what a crazy thing. It, so there's no notion that um, Peter uh, and the disciples are, are up in, uh, at the Sea of Galilee because Jesus had said on the day of his resurrection, tell my disciples that I'll see them in Galilee. It's like, eh, I lost Jesus. I'll just go back to fishing. I love the fact that he's talking about vocation. Well, but, he, but he's using it in the narrow sense. But he's also applying boat as being your vocation. I mean, it just starts wonky from the very beginning. You you can't redeem this. No. He's dug a pit so deep. Unbelievable. Peter was a professional fisherman. Do you think he had more than one boat? Probably. Well, guess what? You probably have more than one boat, too. Go back to me. Not only am I a preacher, I am also a family man. That's a boat of mine. I'm also a businessman. 
That's a boat of mine. What happened? These are things that are, are a way of life for me. These are things that give me meaning. And guess what? You probably have more than one boat too. But if we want miracles, then what we're going to have to decide to do is choose to give Jesus our boat. Why? Because Jesus is asking you today like he did Peter. Let me take over your boat. That doesn't make any sense, does it? No. So the vocation that you have, Jesus is asking. I mean, he gave you the vocation. But yet, he wants you to give your vocation back, back to, to him. him. Right. This is weird. It's just, it, it's weird. It's, it's metaphorizing the entire episode. How does one do this? Okay, I'm a father. That's, that's my boat. Let's say I, I agree with what, what uh, you know, he, he's spewing here. How do I give that back to Jesus? I'm not sure how you do that. I'm... I'm Maybe. a pastor. Do you, do you say it? Do you say it? Well, I, I, oh. I don't know. Is that how you do it? I don't know. Is it? Just say, I give this back to you. Yeah. Here's my, here's my boat. <laughs> You're saying, Randy, why is this so important? Because of this fact. Notice this fact. The fact is this. Lack of surrender blocks God's miracle working power. Lack of surrender blocks God's miracle working power. I think of the rich man in, in Matthew chapter 19. This rich man comes to Jesus, and he's asking for the greatest miracle of all. He says, what must I do to have eternal life? You do get that, right? Jesus saving your sorry tail is the greatest miracle of all. Jesus turning sinners into saints is the greatest miracle of all. Jesus rescuing us out of hell and putting us into heaven is the greatest miracle of all. And this rich man came to Jesus asking for the greatest miracle he could ever ask for. And notice what Jesus said to him. Jesus said, Jesus told him in Matthew 19, 21 and 22, if you want a miracle. Now, I cut him off right there before he finishes good, what, good. <laughs> what Jesus says, because he inserted the word miracle. Now, it was, you know, I watched this uh, via video the first time, and so it was very clear to see when the verse comes up on the screen. But I looked at that, if you want a miracle, and he's got the word on the screen, he's got the word miracle uh, in brackets. And I'm thinking, I don't, I don't recall that word. Wow. So I go back uh, and just do just a quick kind of search at, I don't know, maybe six different translations, and it was perfect. Do you, if you want to be perfect or be complete, then he finishes out the verse. But I thought, what a shell game. Right, that is a total shell game. And actually, he's missing the whole point of, the, of this episode with the rich young man. Right, this rich, this rich guy comes up and says, um, I, he, he's got it figured out, basically. He, he's presenting himself before Jesus, and I don't think his question is, is honest at all. Um, what must I do to be saved? Because Jesus responds and says, you know, what, what's the law? How do you read it? And he and he gives it forth, and, and he says, all these things I've kept since my youth. So his problem really isn't his, his lack of surrender or, or whatever it might be. It's that he's orienting himself toward God through his law, not through his gospel. And, and so he G seems to think that I'm able to keep that law. Right. I mean, he's just self-deluded. And so Jesus is exposing the depth of the law and um, saying uh, to him, well, you, you really haven't loved your neighbor as you ought to. 
because you've accumulated all this wealth. You hold on to it. It gives your life meaning. And there's a real problem here with your heart. And, of course, that was all it took for he went away sad. Right. But Randy seems to suggest that the reason that we don't see miracles is because we don't surrender. Now, did you notice? It wasn't just surrender the boat. Now it's surrender everything. Yeah. It reminds me of the hymn, which, praise be to God, we don't sing it in the Lutheran church. But anybody who sings this song, when you start thinking about it, and not just get caught up in the melodic mood music, which it is. You don't surrender all, all to all to Jesus. I surrender. I surrender all. No, you don't. It's condemning everybody who sings that song. Mm-hmm. They don't even realize they're right. being condemned. Correct. Just like the rich young ruler when he didn't even realize he was being condemned. Correct. Go and sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come, follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Now, what was this young dude's uh, his boat? His boat was possession. His life was defined by things. And even though he wanted to go to heaven, even though he wanted a miracle, he wanted the greatest miracle of all, he would not give up control to God. And I think of parents today. It seems like it is socially accepted and also demanded that parents worship their kids. That parents get their lives defined by their children. And I talk to parent after parent after parent. And they want a miracle for their child, but they will not give up control. They want a miracle for their kids, but they will not surrender their boat. And their lack of surrender is blocking God's miracle working power in their life. You know, he just went from preaching to meddling right there. And, uh, you know, he starts off fine. I mean, you and I would agree with him on what he said there about elevating our children, you know, even to the point of, of an idol. But then to talk about those parents that want a miracle. I mean, what, right. what is that? What, right. What, what's that? What is yeah. that? Right. And they're not letting go. Yeah. What's a miracle that that our kids like actually what pick up their dirty (laughs) clothes, take out the garbage without being asked (laughs) again? If you're thinking like that, that's not a miracle. No, that's training. It's not just parents. What's your boat? Are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to let Jesus take over? What what is this? I mean, Jesus take the wheel. I mean, you're familiar with this song. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like that. And uh, actually, Jesus has given these things to us to do. He doesn't want to take over. Does he want to be Owen's dad? No, no, he's no. already assigned who that's supposed to be. That's you, right? He's given you the vocation. It's kind of like uh, going back to Adam and Eve when the Lord gives them dominion, Adam and Eve. And when he tells them this is what this dominion looks like and what it involves, the Lord doesn't stand over the shoulder and say, no, 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 that's not, that's not the way. You, do you want me to come down there and take this take back this over? Back, yeah. <laughs> Would you give this back to me? Right. No. Because if we want miracle working power in our life, then guess what? We need to give Jesus our boat. But notice the second thing 
If we want a miracle in our life today, if we want miracles in our life today, we need to do what Jesus says. You need to do what Jesus says. Look at verse 5 of Luke 5. It says, Master Simon replied, We worked hard all night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets again. Now you can tell Peter was not expecting Jesus to say that. Think about it. Peter had worked all night, and then Jesus decided to have an impromptu church service. And so then he had to take care of the boat while Jesus preached. And he probably expected Jesus to say, hey, let's go to the Cracker Barrel. Let's get on over to the Golden Corral. Back then, they didn't have that, all this pandemic crap going on. They were able to eat out in restaurants with people. And he had fully expected that Jesus was going to do that. But then what did Jesus say? No, I want you to go back, and I want you to do what you've already failed at doing repeatedly. And his expectation caused Peter to struggle with obeying Christ. And we do the same thing. Notice this fact. You might want to write this down. The fact is this. Our expectations keep us from God's miracles. Our expectations keep us from God's miracles. What I have found is one of the greatest signs of rebellion is our expectation. By the way, one of the ways that you express your expectation is by what you get mad at. You expect life to go a certain way. You expect your children to do a certain thing. You expect your spouse to do this. You expect. And our expectations, our expectation often keep us from God's miracle. I think of the story of Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. Okay, before he starts talking about 2 Kings chapter 5, I mean, for us, when, when I heard that he was going here, I thought, oh, this is, this is great. But now I'm starting to think, how in the world does this jive with, you know, what he's talking about regarding miracles? So for us, 2 Kings chapter 5 is all about what, Pastor Bruss? It's all about baptism. What? But he's not, he's not going to he, mention that. Now, I think what you've pointed out thus far is... Every text that he has touched, he's messed it up. So do you think he's going to talk about baptism and rightly handle Second Kings chapter 5? I'm guessing absolutely not. Let, let's just talk about how you and I would, re, would regard Second Kings chapter 5, right? Um, so it's the Jordan River. He's supposed to, Naaman's supposed to wash in the Jordan, and it, it's just dirty. It's, it's nasty. He's got these beautiful mountain streams back in Syria, and he says, why can't I just go back to Syria? How could, it, how could this thing do what the prophet is saying that it could do? Well, this is exactly how the sacramentarians view baptism. How could water connected with the word of the prophet, God, do what God says it does. He's not going to touch that, I bet. You are Captain Obvious. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Naaman was this great general. He was this great soldier. And he was so awesome. His king loved him so much that when he found out that Naaman had leprosy, which was an incurable disease back then, the king sent Naaman to his enemy in order for the, his favorite general to be healed. He sent Naaman to the Israelites, to the children of the people of God. Why? Because he knew that the God of the Bible was a God of miracles. And so even though Israel was his enemy, this king sent Naaman to this local preacher named Elisha and said, hey, I want you to heal this man. 
Now, Naaman rolls up, and as you could probably imagine, he had horses, he had chariots, he had a crew. I mean, this was a big-time dude. And Naaman rolls up, and he's like, hey, preacher, I want to be healed. And unfortunately, though, Elisha was a lot like your preacher. He was a little crotchety. He was a little irritable. And he was a little fussy. And he wasn't going to have nothing to do with none of this pomp and circumstances BS. And so this is what Elisha did. He didn't even go out to talk to Naaman. He didn't even acknowledge Naaman's existence. He sent his servant out and told Naaman, this big-time general, hey, go dip yourself in this ugly, nasty, dirty river called Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. And we pick up the story in verse 10 of chapter 5 of 2 Kings. He says, Naaman became angry. And stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, Naaman said. I expected Elisha to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers in Damascus better? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in rage. What happened there? Naaman had this expectation. He thought that that preacher was going to walk out and just wave a magic wand and go, whoop, and he was healed. And the preacher and God, because the preacher was operating under the authority of God, didn't do what he expected. And his expectation blocked God's miracle-working power. His expectation kept Naaman from his miracle. What a load of hooey. Yes, it is a total load of hooey, isn't it? He got the miracle. Yes, he did, and... What the Lord had said is, this is how I'm going to do the miracle. And he thought, I, I don't believe that. Of course, right. just like a lot of people today. I mean, a lot of people fall into that category, as you were mentioning yeah. earlier, of of not believing that the Word of God attached to the water actually brings about a new birth. They don't believe this. Uh, and it really doesn't even matter about how much water. Right. The Word of God is efficacious, and when it's attached to a physical thing, it does this supernatural work. Not because we came up with that, but God said, yeah, you can trust me. This is, this is, exactly, uh, this is exactly what happens. But Randy Hand is saying because Naaman was mad and angry and he had some sort of unmet expectation— he, he walked away without without the miracle. Right. And to put a finer point on it, it's not as if his unbelief robbed the combination of God's word with the water of the Jordan and the dipping seven times. That efficacy still remained there. It's just that, that he wanted nothing to do with it. So you're suggesting uh, that there was, there was clearly unbelief, that the, the anger was just a response to the unbelief. Yeah, it was, it was the acting out of the unbelief to the Word of God. And this is why he had others in his entourage who said, look, we've come all this way. I mean, what's, what's the big deal? Just do it. That's really interesting, and that actually shows that the efficacy was there, e- even apart from his, his uh, faith or lack of faith. And it gave the faith that, that it demanded. But, you know, in Naaman's defense— if my body was eat up with open sores, yeah, go jump in Lake Shawnee or or the Kansas River yeah, out here, right? No way. You would think I would be doing more damage to my body 
than going back, as you said, to the much cleaner rivers back in Damascus. So, I mean, I, I, I totally get, get it. <laughs> I get his initial point that why would I, why would I do this? But we always like to think that folks uh, back in, uh, you know, Old Testament times, I mean, they're just so ignoramuses when it comes to sanitation and germs and things like that. I mean, they had no idea. They, they, these people had no idea. Right, a muddy river was just as good as a clean one. Right, yeah. right, right. By the way, we do the same thing when it comes to our health issues, right? We all admit Unless you're part of the 2%, maybe 3%, maybe 5 that don't struggle with weight in America. We all want God to fix us. Boy, we make resolutions, we pray all the time. Oh God, oh God, make me skinny. Oh God, oh God, make me skinny. And being the control freaks that we are, we think, I know how I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to exercise it off. I'm going to run, run, run. I'm going to walk, walk, walk. I'm going to lift weights. And I'm going to do all this stuff. And then but the whole time God's saying, hey, food is medicine. And if you want to change your health, you need to change the way you eat. And we're like, uh-uh. That's not what I expected. I don't want to change my health. I don't want to change the way I eat. And we, we refuse God's miracle of working in our bodies because we are upset with God because he doesn't do what we expect. What? This is craziness. Yeah, it's painful to listen to that, it, isn't it's it? It's totally painful. He must have a bunch of... Uh, Fatsos? To- yeah, Tommy Tons of Fun. Right. Tommy and Tammy Tons of Fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> what in the world? I mean, and, and this, is, this is, to go back to your early, early comment... Your weight is actually something below you, within your control. Right. Like, this isn't. This is not brought about by miracles or anything like that. And I mean, everybody knows that the American is fat because they eat too much stupid food and don't get any exercise. But it's not a miracle to stop eating McDonald's. That's not a miracle. Right. <laughs> right. And eating salad instead. Right. No, that's just being smart with what you know about diet. Let me brag on myself here for just a few moments. Please do. (laughs) So I've lost 11 pounds in the last three weeks. That's not a miracle. It's because? Because I've changed my eating habits. Sure. Now don't get me wrong. I could go eat a sausage biscuit at Hardee's right now, but I'd rather lose the weight because these clerical shirts are expensive and (laughs) when you get too too tight, they uh, restrict everything. Uh, restrict movement, and uh, especially around my neck. So the point is, it's not a miracle. Right. I wonder what he's talking about, what God has revealed about diet. Is he talking about vegetarian? I don't think so. I don't think so. But God certainly never revealed that McDonald's was wicked. No. Specifically. or I mean, I I just don't know what what he could possibly be talking about unless he's saying... That Adam and Eve's original diet was vegetarian, which is true. And if we all ate vegetarian, we'd be doing a lot better on the weight front. He's still going to spin this out a little bit Oh, boy, I can't wait. Yeah, but I don't think he brings up vegetarianism. But my point is you're not doing vegetarian. Oh, no. Right. You're doing a keto diet. Correct. Yeah, which is all meat. Well, yeah, because you want your body to eventually start helping out the process 
I guess this is the miracle of the of the body doing its work. No, I don't know if it's a miracle. It's just the, it's the way the body works. Right. Yeah. It happens to Don all the time. Many, many of you know that God has worked in Don's heart, and he's, he's about half the man he used to be, right? I still remember the time that I used to sit beside Don on Thursday nights. You remember when we do, used to do that? On Thursday nights, and one time Don had a Santa Claus belly. It was sitting there, and I looked at her, I said, whoa, that belly's big. But God got a hold of Don. God t- changed Don's heart. Did Don give Jesus his boat? His Santa Claus boat? Yeah. His sleigh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did he surrender all? Apparently he did. I, this is so ridiculous. Well, that, li- listen to what happened to Don. Okay. He changed the way he eat, and guess what? Amazing, all amazing. His health has improved. And here's what some of y'all love to do. You go to Don after church. You go to Don. All the, oh, Don, hold me accountable. Don, I want to be healthy like you. But as soon as Don starts talking about your nutrition, your face changes. Your attitude changes. You get mad at Don. Why? Because God through Don's not doing what you expected. And so please to learn this truth. And the truth is this. A miraculous life is an if-you-say-so life. A miraculous life is an if-you-say-so life. A miraculous life says, hey, Lord, if you say I need to change the way I eat so that I can experience the miracle of help, then if you say so, I'm going to do it. In fact, Jesus says it another way in John chapter 15, verse 7. He says, if you follow my teachings, you can ask anything you want, and it will be given to you. What's the condition? We want the anything. We want it given to us. We want the miracles. We're at church today expecting a miracle. But he says, if you do what I say, if you follow my teaching. It's so simple. He says, obedience equals miracles. Obedience equals miracles. Some of y'all need to write something down. You're too busy looking at me. I know I'm handsome, but write that down. Obedience equals miracles. you know, I, I would tend to agree with him when he says that the people there at this church are there for a miracle. I would argue that the miracle that they're looking for is actually the forgiveness of their sins and to hear of the greatest miracle of all, which is the gospel. The problem, of course, is they're not getting either. They're getting all law. And then on top of that, as he will say at the very end of the sermon, he'll talk about the forgiveness of sins but there's no absolution given. Mm -hmm. goes back to what we were talking about with Judas. Judas realizes he's a sinner. He goes to the place to receive the absolution. He doesn't get it, so he takes matters into his own hands because because the religious leaders look at Judas and say, what has that got to do with us? Yeah, and so is Don... Is Don giving them the Dr. Adkins version of what the diet ought to be, or whose version is he giving? It's not God's. It's Which ridiculous. is vegetarianism? I don't. Well, it is would that be. what you would I, say? I would, I would say. I mean, but whatever. It, it, it's just stupid. It's just stupid, as if God is talking through Don about how fat you are. And we're not even sure that Don is uh, not obese anymore. Right. He, he, he still just, might be. He could be eighty half, pounds overweight. He could be half of six hundred pounds. <laughs> yeah. I think of my parents. You got to understand as a. Man has been divorced. It's hard to be Rosemary and Bob's son. Because you got to understand, every church they've ever gone to, 
And then even when we put them in the nursing home, every time I go around them, I got people coming up to me all the time saying, oh, I want what your mommy and daddy got. They've been married 60 plus years and they, they love each other. They not only love each other, they, they like each other. And everywhere I go, Joshua will attest, Jessica will attest, everywhere we go we hear people, I just want what your mom and daddy's got. But if they ever ask my mom and dad how they got it, this is what my mom always said. We were just dumb enough to do what God said. She says, I was just dumb enough as a wife to submit to my husband, even though he only had an eighth grade education and I had college degree. He was just dumb enough to love an old Jezebel, rebellious, loudmouth woman, even though I gave him every reason in the world not to. We were just dumb enough to discipline our children in the ways of the Lord. Why? Because if you haven't figured out the greatness of your marriage is somewhat dependent upon how you deal with your children. And we were just dumb enough to do what God says. And then and there they got their miracle. Yeah, Pastor Bros. Give me a break. So a man and a woman committed to one another till death do them part. Through thick and thin, they follow what the Lord has said. And there's we no should, doubt that we, there was uh, rough times sure. and, and sin committed against one another. But there's no miracle here. What? No. This is the world of the law. God says um, that he's a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers, the third and fourth generation of those who hate him, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Well, this is how he blessed them on this earth. And this is a great lesson, right? There's no mystery here at all. God has revealed it, do it, and there's great blessing there. But it's not a miracle. Yesterday, I was at the funeral home. As you know, there uh, is an older couple, uh, well into their... 90s. Yeah, you're right, uh, that the wife died. Husband is still alive, and one of the daughters met with me to discuss the upcoming... Uh, funeral arrangements. We talked about how that wife was so devoted to that husband, so much so when they moved into an assisted living situation where other nurses were caring for the husband, the wife would feel jealous because she felt like that was her role. It was quite sweet. Mm-hmm. And you've met her. You, you, you know who this woman yep. is and how delightful she was. The daughter said, interestingly enough, I wish I could be that way towards my husband. In Randy's world, mom and dad had the miracle. The daughter didn't, even though the daughter had the model, the role model of this mother. And yet the daughter has been faithfully married for... Totally. Yeah, 50 plus years. Totally. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Raised children in the faith and all that. Yeah. It's it's not a miracle. Nope. But it is depending upon the grace of God to fulfill one's vocation. Right. Pretty mundane. Very mundane. You see, obedience equals miracles. Are you dumb enough to do, like Peter, what God says? But you see, not only does it take us giving Jesus our boats if we want miracles, not only does it take doing what Jesus says if we want our miracles— but there's a third thing, and I'm going to go ahead and warn you up front. This is going to, I need you to put your thinking caps on. 
I need you to think with me here, okay? Because I'm going to ask you to, to go a little deeper. And the third thing we've got to do, if we want miracles from God, is we've got to respond with humility. We've got to respond with humility. Look at verse 8 of chapter 5. It says, when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I am such a sinful man. Now that verse is the ultimate reason why Peter got his miracle. That verse is the ultimate reason why he got so much resources that day that it almost sunk his ship. That verse is the ultimate reason. You're saying, what do you mean? God knew that if he blessed Peter with a miracle, it was going to cause him to humble himself. God the Father looked into the future and knew that Peter's miracle would humble him rather than puff him up. I mean, think about it if it was us. Boy, if that had been me out there, I'd be like, hey, I told you I was a good fisherman. Look at me. I've been, I've, I've told you. And I told you that Jesus dude was good. You see, if you listen to me, you'd be good. And if I would have got two shipfuls of fish, and my life revolved around fish, and I'd be like, mm, told you I was the greatest. But God knew that Peter would respond to his miracle with humility. And that leads us to this very uncomfortable fact that many of you don't want to know. And the fact is this, our lack of miracles reveal a prideful heart. Okay, so let's follow through what he said thus far, as painful as it is for us to hear it. The reason, Pastor Russ, you and I don't see miracles to the degree that Jesus says that we should is because, number one, we haven't given Jesus our boat. Uh, Number two... We have a lack of surrender. Number three, I assume we don't do what Jesus says and that we're not completely obedient. And then, I guess number four maybe, is that we're just a bunch of prideful folk here? Is this? Yeah, he knows that if he, God knows that if he provided the miracle, uh, you and I would take pride and take pride as if it were our own, I guess is what he's saying. There's a there's a real theological problem here. The way that he's got this thing figured out is that he's got God acting prior to foreknown facts on the basis of the foreknown facts. And this this is known uh, in kind of dogmatic shorthand as intuitu fidei in view of faith. So some people will assert that God saves person X because God foreknew that person X was going to come to faith. Well, then upon whom is the salvation dependent? It's not God. It's the person. And this is exactly what he's doing here, uh, that, that, that he's saying because God knew Peter would appreciate the miracle and be humbled by it, therefore God did it. But if he had foreknown that God wouldn't appreciate the miracle, God would not have done it. What a, what a weird deal. Doesn't that break down a little bit here, what he's saying when uh, he tells Peter, same guy, uh, to get out of the boat and walk on the water? Right, because there he loses his faith. Right. right? Or he, he in, in the weakness of his faith. It also breaks down totally with uh, the pharaonic miracles as well, which he had earlier talked about. God worked great miracles right in the face of, of Pharaoh. And... Pharaoh didn't believe it. 
Well, he worked great miracles in front of the Pharisees, too, and they didn't right, believe right, it. Right, right, right. Our lack of miracles reveal a prideful heart. Some of you have been talking about it in your head while I'm talking. You're like, well, I had no miracles. I don't have any miracles. I don't know why other people get miracles, and I don't get miracles. Our lack of miracles reveal a prideful heart. They're a red flag of pride. You see, what God, by not giving you a miracle, is doing is he's looking at your heart and says, you know what, there's too much pride there. If I give them a miracle, they're going to get puffed up. It's going to end up destroying them. And I'm not going to feed their pride with a miracle. You're saying, Randy, how do you know that? Well, notice what Jesus' brother says in James 4.3. He said, you don't get your miracle. Why? Because. Your motives are all wrong. You don't get a great marriage. Why? Your motives are all wrong. You don't get great children. Why? Your motives are all wrong. What does James 4, 3 say? It says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Nothing in there about miracles? Nothing about miracles. We've got a brand new theology here, new doctrines. Totally. You just, what's he say? You want only what will give you pleasure. Now remember what's the purpose of miracles? To make God look good. I don't see anywhere in the Bible that says Paul gets a miracle to make himself feel good. We don't get miracles. Our lack of miracles reveals a prideful heart. A good friend of mine, he talks about it all the time. He says, he says you got to re- reverse engineer your life. What does that mean to reverse engineer your life? He said you got to look at what it is, what your life is now, and then try to figure out how we got here. And what God is saying to you, and what God is saying to me, is our lack of miracles reveals a heart of pride. I look back at my life. In the last 10 years, there's been maybe three miracles. I can't tell you how much I would love to know what those three miracles are. Well, I'm telling you, if, if miracles actually happened to me, I would know exactly what they were, how many they were, when it happened, when it happened and, and I mean, I could give you the date and time and, and who was witnesses to it. That's just crazy. So he's, he's just talking about coincidences here that, that seem miraculous to him. Well, the only time I've ever heard you refer to anything remotely sounding like a miracle was that time when that truck in Menards that, <laughs> that had the door open or something like this. Right. And somebody walked in front of it or what, what what's that story? I was in Menards picking up some shingles in a two-ton truck and I had the gates open in the back and cuz I thought I had driven up to the right bay and it turns out I hadn't so I jumped back in the truck and it lurched along and this little man walked right in front of me just as another truck passed by. Meanwhile those gates had swung open and what they did is they went boom they slammed against the side of the truck and cleared the pickup that was coming by me around a corners and I, I would have decapitated the driver of that truck those are heavy gates anyway jumped out of the truck my knees were shaking and I went looking all over that place calling for this man for the little man for the little man and I couldn't find him <laughs> which either a could have been an angel right or B, it could have been a little man crossing the street. Exactly. <laughs> Pure coincidence. Well, yeah. and the providence of God. That, right. Now, we, we say thanks be to God on either front. Right. But your point was that either A, miracle, or B, providence of God was blazoned on your mind. Yeah, I can tell you what year that was. 
That was the summer of 1991. I was working for D.W. Davey, roofing. So, okay, 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 we got it. We don't need okay, any more details. Right. <laughs> so, so, all right, so Randy Hand's got three miracles that... Maybe, maybe, maybe three. ...that have been, like, emblazoned uh, upon his heart, which he doesn't... Elaborate. He doesn't elaborate on. But what he's going to point out in saying this is there should be more. Right. So he's got he's got a dearth. So there's something wrong with Randy and something wrong with his congregation. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. In fact, you want to know why it took us eleven years to get Naomi? Because we finally had to get to the point where we would say, okay, God, this is not about us. This is not about me looking good. This is about you. And we continually have to humble ourselves and give that baby back to God. And it wasn't until God looked into our heart and he saw that we were humble finally. Can you imagine the pride that it takes for 11 years to go by before you finally humble yourself? That's the level of pride in my heart. Unglued. Oh, there, there are certainly times, I can point to all sorts of times in my life where the Lord, I'm certain that the Lord waited to give a gift when I would appreciate it more, when he taught me something th- through my experience that was going to be useful for the next stage of life. But, but, but that's you looking back right, on that. Right. You, when you were in the midst of it, it wasn't like you said, oh, I've got pride in my heart. Right. I've got to eliminate the pride because God wants to give me X, Y, or Z. Right, right. No, exactly. I mean, again, you're going back to what he said earlier about the, the, the uh, uh, reverse engineering. Right. But he's leaving the people with a guilt trip. Because they're not, they're not humble enough. They're not humble enough, right. and they've got to work on that in order for God to give what he wants to give. It's a stingy God, if you ask me. It is, and I guess my point is that God will God will do the humbling himself, right? And he's using it to humble you. This is the cross. And God has denied me. He has deprived me miracles. The miracle of impact. There's no greater desire in my heart than thousands of people in this area to come to this church every week. Why won't he do that? Why? Because I'm so freaking arrogant. And I turn around and walk away saying, yep, it's all about me. Not to serve as this guy's uh, psychologist here, but I really think that that, what he said right there, is the driving angst behind this whole sermon. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and because he's he's poured, and I get it, he's poured eleven years of his life into this, and most likely coronavirus has stripped them of a lot of their attendance, influence, momentum, maybe, and now they're just starting to have. They closed down for you know, like a lot of people, and they had some drive-in services, if I recall. Uh, they're just now starting to have in-person services. And like most churches in the country, they're seeing not even 50%. And, you know, he's realizing, I, I can't put another 11 years of my life just to get us back to where we were. We should be so much further along. If I were to be a pastor to him, uh, right, I mean, this, this, is, this is a pastoral crisis, and he's put the cart before the horse. Uh, Harold Zenkbeil says, if the pastor fails to remember that he's the Lord's errand boy. He's, he's just going to face disappointment after disappointment. So he's, he's really elevated himself. He, he's, he's saying that his arrogance 
right. is blocking his impact. Right, and and he thinks that that is something other than thinking that he is the key to this whole thing. Well, the key to this whole thing is God's word and sacraments. And if he just realizes that the Lord has not asked him to see to success or failure or anything like that, he's just said, here it is. Here's my word, preach it. Here are my sacraments, administer them. Let me see to the outcome. And whether he has a you know thousands of people coming to his church or 15, he'd be able to say, I am doing what the Lord has asked me to do faithfully. What about you? Are you beginning to see why you're not experiencing miracles? You saying, Randy, why is this so important? Why are you yelling? You're slobbering. The, the CDC is going to come in and quarantine you. Why are you doing this? Because of this truth. The truth is this. A, mir- a miraculous life is an honest life. A miraculous life is an honest life. Oh, I love this verse. I love sharing with you scriptures that I've never seen before. And I got this one this week. Proverbs 11 one says this. God likes everyone who is honest. <laughs> What's he saying there? He's saying, well, God loves everybody. But he likes those who are honest. God loves all of us. But he only likes the ones in here who are honest. You're saying, Randy, what do we need to be honest about? Ecclesiastes 7.20 says this, Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Have you been honest about that? Because I have a feeling the, the Spirit of God is reminding you that it's been a long time since you've confessed a sin in your life we got to be honest and, and join with Isaiah 6.5 that says what? Woe is me, I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. If we want to be honest, we got to amen what Jesus says. When he's talking to a group of church people like us, he says, You're evil in Luke 11.13. By the way, let's look at our prayers. They'll reveal your honesty. An honest person will begin every prayer saying, Lord, you are good, and I am evil. Lord, even on my best days, you do get it right. Right now, my goodness is as filthy rags to God. I'm as prayed up. I've spent nothing but time today prayed up, asking God to get rid of the crap within me. And yet even now, my righteousness is as filthy rags. Now, I would say that he's somewhat meandered onto the baseball field, like he's not out in the weeds anymore. No, and uh, my response is, wow, you know, your people might pray differently if your preaching were different, right? Right. If if you had serious law and gospel preaching, if you took seriously uh, instructing people from God's law and the godly life they should live and the ways in which they've failed to and applying the balm of Christ to them— Uh, their prayer life might, uh, I would argue, be very, very different. But see, the problem is, in this evangelical church, there is no absolution. Faith cometh by hearing, and and the Lord has put this pastor in front of these people to, for him to say what he's at least saying right now, but then to offer, as you said, this, this balm, this comfort, this restoration, this forgiveness. But I'll be doggone. It's not going to come. It's not going to come. The Mm -hmm. sins that the people walk in there with, 
they leave with. They got to go handle in their prayers. Yeah. And then they never know. Randy says, I've been praying all morning that the Lord would uh, rid this junk out of me. Mm-hmm. Is he going to proclaim the gospel here? Let's see. Okay. If he does, that'll be the best thing that's happened in this sermon thus far. Yep. Yet I found that so many of us refuse to admit that we're sinners. This is what I found most Christians say. I'm talking to Christians. I'm not talking to you pagans that don't love Jesus. I'm talking to you Christians. Most Christians will say, well, I, I made a mistake. What they love to say is this, oh, they just misunderstood me. It was all a misunderstanding. We Christians, we will not acknowledge that our goodness is filthy rags. And if our goodness is filthy rags, what about those stupid things that we say and we do? You want to know why we don't have miracles? 1 John 4.1.8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If your prayer doesn't begin and end with confession of your sinfulness, the truth is not in you. And we're not talking about sin with a couple of capital S because that was dealt with when we got saved. He's talking about the daily sin, the pride, the ego, the selfishness, the laziness, the, the narcissism that just besets us. That was quick. He just just got just oh it was like a flyby with uh, uh you know Tom Cruise and Top Gun uh you know buzzing the tower. We came really really close while talking yeah. about the sin that Jesus dealt with and we did, oh sure by. that that's interesting. Yeah, that that did get passed by. So a couple things just real quick. He should have gone on one verse uh, in his citation of 1 John, right? Uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then talked about that for a little bit. But I don't get what the heck he's talking about with capital S sin and versus sins. It means he's talking about actual sins versus... Probably original sin versus versus the actual so what did the Lord forgive when he died on the cross? All sins. Original sin and all the actual sins that we commit. Um, and if, if all the stuff that he was talking about is not part of original sin, right? I don't, I don't, so I don't, I don't get how his sin theology works. I'm just saying it. Armatology. Exactly. I was going to say that, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to. I didn't want to pull that one out. I'll let you do that. I want to save it for you. Oh, if we say we have no sin, somebody comes to you and says, "Hey, would you would you look into your heart and life? Do you have any sin there?" And you're like, "No, I don't see anything." You're deceiving yourself, and there's no. Uh, you're saying, "Really, what's I got to do with miracles?" Psalm sixty six eighteen says, "If I had not confessed the sin in my heart." The Lord would not have listened to that wife that's praying for a miracle in her marriage. If she had not started that prayer with confessing of her sin, then God has not heard your request for a miracle. For that father who's praying for a miracle with his son, if that prayer doesn't begin with confession of sinfulness, then God has not heard your prayer for a miracle. Some of you are saying, God, why haven't you given me a miracle? And God's like, you haven't really asked. All you've done is told me why you deserve one. You see, James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace 
to the humble. You do get that miracles are a gift of grace. Well, I don't know if you do. Some of you think God owes you a miracle. You prideful, egotistical. Some of you are mad at God right now because you haven't gotten a miracle. You prideful, you egotistical. Not only is God not going to give you a miracle, he's going to oppose you when you try to make your own. He has got the cudgel out. Holy cow. I mean, this is, the sheep aren't just getting a little bloody and bruised. They are getting beat to a pulp. Well, I mean, you and I, we've got some vacation days. I mean, we could uh, we could take off a Sunday and maybe attend attend this church. Yeah? No, thanks. No? <laughs> no. no. Even if I were in the same town. No? No. But the Lord talks to him and tells him where to go to lunch. Right. <laughs> so I wonder, are you being honest with yourself? Are you being honest with yourself? Will you remove whatever lie it is that's blocking your miracle? I don't need to shut up. Bow your heads, close your eyes. I just need to be quiet and let the Spirit work. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We ask you... This is your first time to bow your heads and close your eyes because this is the most important time of the service where it really needs to only be two people, you and God. Yeah, you and God and Randy talking. I'd, I'd rather have my quiet time without that <laughs> voice. <laughs> and actually, in his defense, I, I'm pretty sure that this mood music is uh, is being laid down post-production. There's nobody up there playing this as he's doing it. No, okay. No. But I thought it was interesting how he, he called this the most important time. That somehow or another, during the sermon itself, the Holy Spirit isn't attached to uh, God's Word. And now as we get ready for the altar call or decision time, everything is leading up to this. It's very typical right. in, Which, in evangelical circles. Sure, oh yeah, right. And it makes, makes his proclamation into nothing. And this is what God's wanting to tell you, please hear me. Please don't let yourself be distracted. God's wanting you to always remember that Jesus only saves sinners. And Jesus only forgives sin. If all you've ever confessed is mistakes and misunderstandings and ended up blaming somebody else because of the stuff in your life, if you've never asked and never confessed that you are a sinner, if you've never confessed your sin, then you haven't been forgiven and you are not saved. How do people go to church all their life and still bust tail wide open? Because they've never confessed that they're sinners and they've never been forgiven for their sin. Oh, please don't let that be you. Every fiber of my being wants to tell you what to do. But a good friend of mine said the other day, if you don't know what to say to God, then you're not ready to be saved. But if right now your heart is just crying out, your heart is saying, oh God, please be merciful on me, a sinner, then you're ready to get saved. It doesn't take my words. It takes your heart crying out to God, calling upon the name of the Lord. 
So let me pray for you right now. God, I just pray for those who've never dealt with their sin. Lord, I pray for those church people who think they're Christian and they're not. Why? Because they've never confessed their sin. God, I pray, oh Lord, that you have broken down their arrogance and their pride. And that, Lord, you will stir up within them conviction, repentance, faith. And, Lord, that you will just empower them to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Lord, use me. Use your people. Lord, send them to somebody that they need to talk to, that they trust. But, Lord, may they get saved. May salvation come to their house today. It's in your name I pray. Well, wow, that was... Oh, that was a uh, that was a ride, wasn't it? That was really, really difficult. I, some of these I enjoy. Not I, this one. No, I, I really did not enjoy this at all. It it was such a mess. And like I said, I I don't know if we caught it or or not. Um, it's hard to respond to because it's 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 like um, it's <laughs> it's kind of like you bump into a guy at the bus stop with a with a tinfoil hat on who's reading the bus schedule as an indication of when the Martians are going to come, right? It's it's just how do you even address that? That's what I that's what this felt like to me. Well, it really did change there at the end though, did it not? I mean, we've been talking about miracles and the lack thereof and why that's the case. And then it all became about people accepting Christ. You know, and I got to I got to commend him on, uh, I mean, actually, even though his theology there is warped, there was a serious proclamation of the law. Uh, he really thumbed some things that are, that are hugely problematic in terms of our sin, arrogance and pride and all this sort of stuff. And he did proclaim the gospel there. Uh, I can't remember exactly the words that he, that he used. Jesus doesn't save anyone except that they're a sinner or whatever. I mean, this is good stuff, right? Um, but compared to the, the, I mean, look, I mean, I, I agree with you, but it's like a, 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 a kernel of corn in a big, long turd. Wouldn't you say? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sure. Well, there you have it, folks. (laughs) Go to the Patreon page if you'd like to support us from the work that we're doing here as we pick through turds to find kernels of corn. (laughs) And we'll see you next time.
You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or St. John LCMS Topeka.org.